Lesson 2 for October 1 through to 7, The Great Controversy. Sabbath afternoon, October 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we continue to open your word again today. We're looking at the book of Job. And Lord, we see there the struggle that occurred over such a long period of time that helps us understand more about why we're in a situation we're in now. And as we open your word this week, we pray your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us that not only may we know more about you, but we may be able to share that with the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Let's read that again, Zechariah 3, 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? From the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, page 969, we read, Scattered across the pages of both the Old Testament and the New Testament lie many references and allusions to an unrelenting war between God and Satan, between good and evil, on both cosmic and personal levels. Comparing these passages, we inlay their individual insights to form a mosaic window of truth through which we can perceive the total message of Scripture with greater clarity than otherwise. End of quote. The Great Controversy theme forms a template that can help us better understand the total message of the Bible, especially the plan of salvation. Though the theme is much more apparent in the New Testament, it is found in the Old Testament too, and perhaps nowhere in the Old Testament are we given a clearer glimpse of Satan in this conflict and how they can powerfully affect life here than in the book of Job. This week we'll look at the broader reality behind this immediate reality that's the main focus of Job. And though our lives and stories are different from Job's, we have one thing in common. Like Job, we are all involved in this controversy. Sunday, October 2. A little heaven on earth. The book of Job begins on a relatively positive note. From a worldly perspective at least, we see a man blessed in every way. Question. Read Job chapter 1 verses 1 through to 4. What did the text reveal about the kind of life that Job lived? What were the positive aspects of Job's existence? Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, 
and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Job certainly seems to have it all, including a righteous character. The word translated in Job 1.1 as blameless comes from a word that can mean complete or full of integrity. The word for upright means straight, which can give the idea of walking on a straight path. In short, the book opens with an almost an Eden-like scene depicting a wealthy man of faithfulness and integrity who has it all. Nevertheless, he has it all in a fallen world. Question. Read Job chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. What do these texts reveal about the reality of the fallen world that Job inhabits? So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Ellen White writes in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 1140, Amid the festivities of his sons and daughters, he trembled lest his children should displease God. As a faithful priest of the household, he offered sacrifices for them individually. He knew the offensive character of sin, and the thought that his children might forget the divine claims led him to God as an intercessor in their behalf. End of quote. Clearly, Job had it good, about as good as it can get here. As Eden-like as the scene is presented, a man with a full life, big family, a great name and many possessions, it's still a life lived on a fallen planet, steeped in sin, and so, as Job will soon see, it comes with all the dangers that existence here brings. So to finish today, what are the good things in your life right now? How can you learn to be always in an attitude of thankfulness for them? Monday, October 3. Cosmic Conflict the book of Job begins on earth in a place of peace and tranquillity. However, by the sixth text of the first chapter, the venue changes. It instantly shifts to an entirely different aspect of reality, one that is not seen by humans unless through divine revelation. And interestingly enough, this other aspect of reality, heaven, doesn't seem to be as tranquil and peaceful as things are on earth, at least in what is first presented here. Question. Read Job chapter 1, verses 6 through to 12. Though we will study these texts in more detail later in this quarter, what is happening here? How does it contrast to what we have just seen happening with Job on earth? Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? 
So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's so much to explore in these few texts. They reveal aspects of our universe that all our space telescopes don't detect, and that human science doesn't even begin to fathom. What's fascinating, though, is that they also reveal a cosmic conflict. It's not a calm, peaceful and tranquil conversation that we access in this passage. God talks about Job with, to use a human idea, a sense of pride, like a father proud of his son. Satan, in contrast, mocks what God says about Job. In verse 9, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? One could almost hear a sneering sarcasm, a mocking tone in what Satan says to God. Though the text doesn't explicitly say that this confrontation was in heaven, that's surely where it was. And thus you have this created being, an angel, standing before God in heaven and challenging him to his face before other sons of God. It's hard to imagine someone talking to a worldly leader like that, but here we have a being doing so to God himself? How could this happen? The answer is found in a theme that appears in various places and in different ways all through the Bible. It's called the Great Controversy, and it provides a powerful template to help us to understand not just the book of Job, but the entire Bible and its explanation of the whole sad story of sin and suffering on earth. And even more important... It helps us better understand just what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross in order to solve the problem of sin and suffering on the earth. Tuesday, October 4, The Conflict on Earth The book of Job pulls back a veil and reveals a dimension of existence that our eyes and ears and worldly philosophies could never show us. If anything, these texts should show us just how limited our eyes and ears and worldly philosophies are when it comes to understanding the big picture. And what these few texts show, too, is a conflict between God and this other being, Satan. And though the controversy is first introduced in the book of Job as taking place in heaven, it quickly shifts to the earth. All through the Bible, we find texts that point to this ongoing conflict, one that involves us as well. Question. Read the following texts. How do they reveal the reality of a conflict being fought here on earth with evil supernatural powers? And there's one, two, three, four, five, six sets of verses we'll have a look at. Firstly, Genesis 3 verses 1 to 4. 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And First John 3 verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And finally, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. These texts are just a small sampling of numerous texts that point either explicitly or implicitly to a literal devil, a supernatural being with malicious intentions. Though many people view the idea of Satan as a primitive myth, with such clear biblical testimony, we should not fall for this deception. So to finish today... What are ways that, even now, you see the reality of Satan's work in our world? What is our only protection? Wednesday, October 5, Job as a Microcosm The opening scenes of the book of Job show us a few crucial points. First, as we have stated, they reveal the reality of another dimension beyond what of ourselves we can now know, a heavenly dimension with heavenly beings other than God. Second, they also show just how interconnected our earthly life here is with the heavenly realm. What happens here on the earth is not disconnected from the heavenly beings in this realm. Third, they reveal a moral conflict in heaven that is indeed connected to what happens here on earth. In short, these opening texts and the ones that follow are a kind of mini-portrayal of the great controversy itself. The texts show one way in which the great controversy, though cosmic in scale, was manifested in the life of one man, Job. And, as we will see, the issues involved encompass us all. Question. The book of Job shows Satan in confrontation with God. What it doesn't show is how it first started. How do the following texts help us get some understanding about the controversy? First of all, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. 
How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through to 16. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created, till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And first Timothy chapter three and verse six not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Ellen G. White talked about the law of love as the foundation of God's government. She noted that because God does not want forced obedience, he therefore grants freedom of will to all his moral creatures. However, as she says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 34 and 35, there was one who perverted the freedom that God had granted to his creatures. Sin originated with him, who, next to Christ, had been most honoured of God and was highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. End of quote. She then quoted from the text above in Isaiah and Ezekiel to describe the fall of Satan. The crucial concept here is the law of love and the reality of free will. The Bible tells us that Satan became self-exalted and proud because of his own splendor and beauty. Why this happened, we don't know. It must be part of what Second Thessalonians 2.7 calls the mystery of lawlessness a connection that makes perfect sense when we understand how closely tied God's law is to the foundation of his government. The point is that by the time Satan is introduced in Job, his fall was past, and the controversy that had started was well underway. So to finish today, what are some important choices that you are facing right now, and what Bible promises can you claim to ensure that you make the right ones. Thursday, October 6, Answers at the Cross. The book of Job brings up many important issues, but many of these same issues do not get answered here. 
we need the rest of the Bible, and even then we still, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13.12, see through a glass darkly. As we saw yesterday, for example, the book of Job says nothing about how Satan's rebellion started. Also, it says nothing about how Satan is ultimately defeated in the great controversy. In fact, despite his major role in all that follows in the book, after appearing only twice in Job, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Satan does not come into view again. He simply vanishes, even though the destruction that he caused remains. The rest of the book doesn't even mention him. Instead, almost all that follows in the book is about God, not Satan. And that makes sense because, in the end, the book of Job is about God and what he really is like. Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't leave us without answers to the question about the defeat of Satan in the great controversy. And central to that defeat is the death of Jesus on the cross. Question. How do the following texts help to explain what Jesus did that will lead to the end of the great controversy? First of all, John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And Revelation 12, verses 10 and 12. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And Romans chapter 3, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And finally, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. At the cross, Satan fully was exposed to the universe for what he really is, a murderer. Those who knew Jesus when he reigned in heaven must have been astonished to see him be so degraded by Satan's minions. That's the judgment on Satan that Jesus talked about in John 12. At the cross, when the Saviour died for the sins of the world, as it says in 1 John 2, 2, only then could heaven proclaim that salvation has now come. Here and now the divine promise made before the world began in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, became a reality. Because of his death on our behalf, Christ could be, as it says in Romans 3.26, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, at the cross, he refuted the devil's charges that God could not uplift his law, that's be just, and still, at the same time, save those who have broken that law, the justifier. After Calvary, Satan's doom was assured. So to finish today, how can we learn to rejoice in what Christ has done for us at the cross? Even amid the trials we face, 
in the great controversy now. Friday, October 7. The concept of a struggle, a controversy between good and evil, is found in many cultures. The idea has persisted throughout the millennia, often expressed through myths. Today, because of the influence of higher criticism and modernist rationalism, many Christians deny the reality of a literal devil and evil angels. These were, the argument goes, just a primitive culture's symbols for human and natural evil. From our perspective as Seventh-day Adventists, it's hard to imagine how anyone makes sense of the Bible at all without belief in the reality of the devil and his angels. Not all Christians have fallen for the deception that denies the reality of this cosmic conflict between supernatural forces of good and evil. An evangelical scholar named Greg Boyd, for instance, has written extensively on the reality of the age-long but not eternal battle between God and Satan. In the introduction to his book God at War, after commenting on a few passages in Daniel 10, Boyd wrote, The Bible from beginning to end presupposes spiritual beings who exist between humanity and God and whose behaviour significantly affects human existence. For better or for worse, indeed, just such a conception, I argue in this book, lies at the centre of the biblical world view. End of quote. How correct he is. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, what other texts talk about Satan and other demonic powers? What is lost if these are interpreted as merely symbols for the dark side of humanity? Two, Niccolo Machiavelli, a Florentine writer of the 16th century, said that it was much better for a ruler to be feared by his subjects than to be loved by them. In contrast, Ellen White wrote in The Great Controversy, page 498 and 9, even when it was decided that he could no longer remain in heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Since the service of love can alone be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and of other worlds, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, could not then have seen the justice and mercy of God in the destruction of Satan. Had he been immediately blotted from existence, they would have served God from fear rather than from love. End of quote. Why does God want us to serve him from love and not fear? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Conversion of a Convict, Part 2. Alexandru went to Norway, where he began drug dealing. 
He was nearly killed twice and thought it was Satan's power that made him invincible. Eventually, he was arrested for drug trafficking and sent back to Romania, where he bought and sold illegal guns. His father-in-law was so angry that he called the police. Alexandru was imprisoned for two years. Prison officials were desperate to know what to do with this man. In one final attempt to reform him, they put Alexandru in charge of the prison's social activities room. As part of his job, Alexandru had to attend all meetings. Church services were held there, including Seventh-day Adventist meetings conducted by lay evangelists. Alexandru enjoyed confounding the speakers with difficult questions. He even read the Bible to find questions to baffle these humble men. But fighting against religion meant he heard a lot of sermons, and asking questions meant he received a lot of answers. Gradually, Alexandru learned about God's love. During one meeting, the lay evangelist asked Alexandru to pray. His mind was in turmoil, and he found it difficult to pray. After the meeting, the lay evangelist touched Alexandru and said, You aren't far from the kingdom of God. Deeply moved, Alexandru began studying the Bible earnestly, looking for faith and comfort rather than for questions to confound the speaker. He realized that he now believed in God. Prisoners and guards noticed the change in Alexandru. He started treating prisoners with kindness and the guards with respect. When his friends mentioned the change, Alexandru told them God made the difference. Alexandru asked the lay evangelist to notify his family in Bucharest about the change in his life. His wife was astonished. She found it difficult to believe that her infamous husband could change so drastically. During the last months of his imprisonment, Alexandru became a teacher among fellow prisoners. After Alexandru was released, he and his wife Florentina spent hours in serious discussion and Bible study. Step by step, he showed her the beautiful message of God's love and salvation. Little by little, she came to understand the power that had changed her husband from a hardened criminal to a gentle, kind, loving man of God. The months following Alexandru's release from prison were difficult. His friends from the underground pressured him to re-enter the lucrative world of ill-gotten fortune. But he stood firm. Later, Alexandru and Florentina were baptised together in the church near the prison where he was converted. And this story has been adapted from a story written by Ian Buchelman from Bucharest in Romania. And just as we're finishing the story, I'd like to tell you a little story. I'm going on leave. And this Sabbath that you're listening, I expect to be in Montreal in Canada. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.